Welcome to the Endless Pursuit Podcast. Where we talk all things hunting and the great outdoors. And here's your hosts, Dodge, Matt and Kyle. Three, two, one, yeah. G'day listeners, welcome back to the Endless Pursuit. We're going into episode eight here and I'd really just like to say a big thank you to all our listeners. We have hit 5,000 listens and downloads and it has only really been about probably five and a half weeks by the time we're recording this. So probably a far greater amount of listeners going forward when this actually drops. But I just want to say a big thank you. We've received some fantastic feedback and some comments and the support has been amazing. So it really has made us really want to keep going with this podcast and keep doing the best we can and making it better and better for you guys. So if you do have any feedback, please shout out, give us an email, jump on our socials and follow us. That would be fantastic. So tonight, back by popular demand. No, not Dodge. It's Uncle Ben. Welcome. beauty. Thank you so much for having me back. A very, very special privilege. Really means a lot. I mean, realistically, it came from the listeners. They thought you were funny. They loved people putting Dodge down. Uh, that seems to be quite a common theme from our listeners. They like Dodge copping a bit of stick. Yeah, yeah. Look, the thing with that is is it's just so easy. No, no, it's funny. And what I like having is it's nice to have a couple of straight guys, and by that I mean straight straight down the line uh, to work off. Whereas, I, you know, it's nice. You're getting a whole room full of funny people. Everyone's fighting. I thought you meant straight shooters because we know Dodge is a bit doesn't shoot that way. What's that, Mr. Deer Killer? <laughs> well, speaking of deer killing, I mean, he's promised me a hunt for a while now and said, I'll take you out, I'll get you your first deer, and then you take Mick, who's shot plenty of deer, and what happened? Well, we wouldn't believe it. We shot deer. And when I say we, I don't mean we because I didn't shoot. Mr. Matheson plugged some deer. But uh, no, that was a great hunt. We uh, got him out finally. Uh, it was a bit of a payback. We had him on last episode, and that's uh, what we were doing after we recorded that one. So we rocked up pretty, finished up pretty late that night on the recording, which uh, resulted in some very late night sandwiches. Which love uh, a I know sandwich. Ben is a fan of a sandwich, and uh, it's one of his hunting standard hunting staple lunches. And uh, made some sandwiches at one thirty in the morning, which uh, didn't end up being eaten. And I don't know if that's a comment on. <sighs> Sorry, mate. Sorry, it was a hunting story, and you were just going on with the diet. Sorry, I'm sure you're going to get to the hunting bit eventually. I'll, I'll be back. Where you go? <laughs> yeah, no, just take some time out, would you? No, I took Matho out. Uh, got there a little bit late as I slept in, which is not that uncommon. What, what was life. on the sandwiches? It was an early morning. Sorry, we got there from sun up. What was on the sandwiches? Was it nice sandwich or plain sandwich or? Oh, I didn't get to eat it until I don't later really care. Sorry, was, carry uh, on with the story. Cheese, uh, I digress. Smoked ham. Well, it seems like you care because you asked, but um, I should know you better than that. The sandwiches are not the point of the story. No, we went out early, got there at uh, sunup. Hold on. Can I stop it here? You've spent the last two minutes talking about sandwiches. Now, I don't know if you follow our social media, but uh, there's been a bit of a question going on. And Hashtag solo eater. Can you please explain... Yeah, I've got the sound bite going on. Can you please explain why you are called hashtag solo eater? Look, it's been – I didn't call myself that. 
I definitely didn't give myself that nickname, but there's been some talk of me possibly looking like someone, and I think Ben had brought it up in the past. Never seen you two in the same room, you and Remy Warren. One of you is an imposter. I'm convinced. Yeah, well, you probably would never see us in the same room because, you know, you can't have that two bigger entities in the same room. We just clash. But the uh, there is some – I can see the resemblance. I get that definitely in the facial features and the beard, and that's where it stops because below that he is quite <laughs> thin and I am quite thick. So I have been known to be referred to as the solo eater as he is referred to as the solo hunter. So – that is where that one comes from. Thank you for bringing that up. And I'll just <laughs> curl up in the corner and have some time to myself now. How would you, like, be some sort of eater other than solo? Like, hi, I'm Uncle Ben. I'm a group eater. What the hell would that mean? Are uh, you not? You don't have dinner with your family? I don't eat them. No. Haven't you seen, what's the one where they eat the spaghetti? What? Lady in the Tramp. That's that's jewel eating. You're talking about cartoon dogs? No. Oh, my the tramp God. They eat the spaghetti. Yeah, this is yeah. a cartoon dog. That movie's got to be 40 years old. That's your reference. That's your pop culture. That's the way you go. I know how to score a point. The lady on the tramp, a cartoon pair of dogs <laughs> suckling on spaghetti from 40 years ago. This will get him. <laughs> Consider me got. Well, you would have been about 20 when that came out. Yeah, that's right. It might run prime. Carry on. Yeah, no, definitely weren't watching that one. Group eater. Uh, look, I think we were trying to talk about a hunt catch-up, but you just keep talking. No, what this is is it's a, it's a sandwich-eating story that the hunt gets in the way of. I, I want you to get through the hunting bit so you can get back to the sandwich-eating, the solo-eating as quickly as possible. Would you like me to focus on the sandwich-eating now? Is there more of it? <laughs> what, what have you been doing for the last three minutes? He <laughs> <laughs> hasn't even started on the good bit. Uh, and then when I got there, it was a bit squashed. <laughs> Wasn't like I made it the night before at one thirty. Did I give you the time I made it and how I'm, I like to butter from right to left? Come on, don't leave anything All out. Right, let's get back to it. So Mick's hunt, I'm still annoyed at this because, as I said, all the promises about come out, we'll help you get a deer. I've got this really good property that I hunt on that you took Mick to, and obviously it's a good property. How um how many deer did he get? Uh, look, we had this conversation going into it that if the opportunity presented for one and we found one, shoot it. If the opportunity presented for two, shoot the second one because it takes just as long to gut and cut up two deer as it does one practically. So by the time you got the cool room running, you may as well run it for two. Now what happened was the hunt played out pretty much the way I wanted it to, and there's a joy in guiding in that when it does play out the way you plan it in your mind. It doesn't happen very often, but this one did. And the opportunity presented for one, bang. The opportunity presented for the second one, he took that shot as well. And that one was a back lung shot and decided to run up the hill a little further when I said, you better put another one in that one. Bang, third shot, three deer dead because he actually shot a different deer than the wounded deer, thinking it was the wounded deer, and the wounded deer just died at the same time. So three deer dead, three shots, very successful morning, but then that started the work. Um, we actually had a photographer with us, uh, Daniel, on that trip, and he uh, said, "Oh, you want me to help with the gutting?" I said, "No, no, you keep you keep snapping away." But um, no, there was a it was a great trip. We finished by nine thirty in the morning, which is when I sent you a photo, Matt. Was that about right? Just uh, I think I said something like, "No deer left on the place," or mate, yeah, sends sends me this lovely photo of three deer down, and goes, "Oh, 
Sorry, mate, they're all gone. You're not going to be able to get any. Yeah, well. Good bloke. There's, there's still some left. I mean, there's 15 or so in that mob and no boys hanging around, so they're somewhere else and they'll keep breeding. But um, no, I hadn't shot any does off this place. It was uh, two does and a yearling and uh, gutted them out. Uh, what did we take? We took Daniel took the hearts and livers. Um, he's into that sort of thing. We took all the meats and just carried out the full bodies backpack style, New Zealand style. Have you done that, either of you? Well, no, Matt, you haven't. Ben, have you ever backpacked? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's deliberate. That's not accidental. Hey, wh- and what's your favourite part of the deer that you've never shot before? Is it the hoofs? And you know what? He sends me more messages. I got more messages that morning when he was out hunting with Mick and I'm just getting overloaded with messages about how many deer he got. He just likes rubbing salt in wounds, Dodge. Yep, he does. I do make a good triple cooked. Anyway, that's a different story. Here we go. Yeah, put on a sandwich. Let's get back to sandwiches. Got a, I can't wait for you to get rid of this boring hunting story and get back to some Something between two bits of bread. The point of the sandwich comment was the sandwiches never got eaten on the hunt because we were finished before that time. We didn't even get to morning tea. Took them home and um, I think I took them to work the next day if anyone was interested. They were quite nice. Um, Nobody has ever been interested in a sandwich story. No. Hunting was great. Three deer in the cool room. Back home by 10.30 or so. Went to the pub for lunch with Mick and that wrapped that up and Mick kindly didn't stay to do any of the cutting up. Uh, he also kindly didn't come back and pick up any of the meat that we cut up. So it's sitting in my freezer waiting for him to make a return visit. He He's actually spoken to me. He's spoken to me and he's asked me just, I, I, well, would like me to take it all off him. And I said, oh, righto. He said, I can take, yep. Yeah. And the transportation cost, of course, is anything that I can eat uh, on a sandwich. Uh, so, yeah, that's how that's going to work out. So that's totally fine. You don't even need to check it with him. I speak with complete authority and confidence. You don't even need to check it with him. He said, then you can take whatever you want of my meat down there. All right, mate, that's what you want. It's not what I heard out of the conversation, but we'll see. I, I, don't know, I won't run it by him. I'll trust you. You're a genuine character. So question for that property. I know you said you're going to take me there eventually when the deer <laughs> are all gone and you've taken Mick and I know you've me taken included. a few other people. Are you ever worried that people might sort of do the dodgy and try and, you know, weasel their way into your access? I mean, I guess what are the parameters or guidelines around that? Uh, Good question. And I know Ben's got some points on this. I'll flick to him in a second. But that that particular property that it does have a road that borders two sides of it and does cop a little bit of uh, spotlighting from the road and the odd shot. I have seen some roos shot that would definitely head and neck shot and shouldn't have been there's no one doing that on the property so that's come from the road and that's probably happened with the deer as well as far as the people i take i actually read them an article which was written by a famous writer uh, his name's ben unton and and handsome tell that story yeah well that didn't come across in the photo at the top of the article but there's a few key things i like to to tell them and i haven't They've all followed through on that. They've all been trustworthy so far. So it makes me want to keep taking them and others back. And it doesn't take much to be burnt. I can understand that. But that doesn't apply to everyone. So I won't I won't give away the pointers that I learned in that article because Ben Ken, it's his article. He wrote it. But I've been lucky enough to cherry pick the right people to take with me, I think is also part of it. I'm not taking everyone. It's sort of something you work your way into. I'm more prone to take someone to a rabbit shooting property than I am a deer shooting property, initially anyway. So you have to work your way into it, Matt. What about you, Ben? What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so regular listeners will 
should well be aware that I write for the WSAA Stabler Magazines, and I wrote an article on exactly this topic some years ago, and I've, I don't know how many articles it is, it's many hundred, but this is probably the one I get asked quite a bit, you know, you reviewed this and give us your insight on that, whatever, whatever. This is the one that I would say that most people have asked for either a copy of the magazine or have asked for uh, a copy of the, the article itself, and it was called Hunting Partner Protocol, How to Get Invited Back, and it happened from obviously from a first-hand experience. So, so I had access to a cracking property at the time and um and it was my access uh meaning I knew the the farmer and and had permission to go and shoot on there and of course hunting unlike you and your solo eating I like hunting to be at least a, a paired activity I find it's one for safety two for conversation etc anyway so we so then we we're both traders and so we'd done some work on the farmer's house and he said to my mate who was a great big gorilla and actually for the article I named him after the first chimp in space, uh, Sparky or someone. So for the article, I called him Sparky because he was a gorilla. It's as close as I could make it. Anyway, uh, and the farmer said, oh, anytime you want to come up, Sparky, you can just come on up and, yeah, have a shot and do whatever you need to do. So he didn't think twice about it. He just, yep, accepted it and then called me up about two weeks later to say that he was going up and did I want to come? So he's invited me, controversial subject, he's invited me back to my own property's access. I was planning to go the week after that. It was a fairly small landholding. If he went the week before, the one thing about this property was a great property, but you can't go two weeks in a row. You just, there's nothing left. Everything goes to ground and that's the end of it. He knew all the prime spots because we, I discovered them and shared them. So I wrote, I wrote the article and basically it said that he didn't do anything illegal and in terms of the farmer he had done nothing wrong but you got to look at it from the person if you are that person and i call it diamond access if you're the one right at the top who is friends with the farmer who's got access you got to think about it in terms of what's in it for me so if he goes there and and let's take this example i couldn't go so let's say he takes some other mate and some other mate gets on the sherbets and shoots a water tank or leaves a gate open or does something silly What's the farmer going to say to me? I can guarantee he's going to say, uh, next time I go to ring, yeah, don't worry about it, mate. That f- mate of yours came up here and shot up a water tank or left the gate open and stock got out. I spent four hours mustering them and putting them back in, uh, so don't bother coming up. Secondly, anything that he shoots on that property is something that I didn't get a chance to shoot at. Now, that's totally different when you're hunting the two of you together, but when he's up there without me, then – I don't, that's one shot, one animal that I can never, never shoot at. Now, this has happened to me a second time on a property more that was up in the sort of upper hunter region. This was more on the uh, in the midwestern area. We hadn't my mate and I had access to this property, Kraken property. Took another mate of ours, and before we'd left, he was on the phone to his mates saying, "Yep, and we can go anytime we want," and organising a hunt without us. And it was. The mutual friend who actually was the first one to ask for a copy of this article and threw it at him. And I know Dodge has done it as well because they don't think they've done anything wrong. Yeah, but the farmer said I could go and there is nothing wrong. But you got to think about it. If it was your access and you invited a bloke up and then he started to go direct, he started to have that diamond access, you got to think of it from his, his perspective. And I get it that it's a privileged position and I don't have any rights to it. I don't own it. What happened was, consequently, old Sparky never got invited to another. It was the last trip we ever went on ever again. Still friends outside of that? Casual acquaintances. That property subsequently got sold. Do you think he's realised? I don't think so. He wasn't that type. 
and um, because he he would read the article, he he was a regular subscriber and realised, oh, sounds a bit like me, but my name's not Sparky. So he wouldn't have ever associated it with him. And what if, what would be some pointers you'd give to listeners if they were a second string or a second tier access to possibly maintain that relationship with their diamond access partner? Absolutely. And so this was all all covered. I should probably share a link to the socials afterwards. As long as it's linked to WSAA, that's all cool. Anyone interested can have a look. And a lot of people, it was a controversial article. People had very strong viewpoints. If you're not the diamond access, people think, well, it's, you're being too precious about it. If you are, and the overwhelming response was, uh, yeah, thank you for writing something that just puts, encapsulates what we're all thinking, which is, yeah, we got we got everything to lose here. It, properties are hard won and hard to keep, and you just don't want to do anything that would um, would jeopardize that. So yeah, it was it was it's, it, that etiquette that protocol. If you want to get invited back, you can gently mention to your mate, "Oh, you're going back there." Now he's going to have other guys that he takes there. Very likely, you might have been a, a fill in because someone was away or injured or couldn't go. You can gently hassle him about it. You can ask him how he went. You can be interested in his photos, but uh, above that. You just go find your own property. And I tell you, the other thing is, and it recently happened to me for the first time, uh, someone invited me to one of their properties that I'd invited them to that actually had some some stock on it. So that's really nice. That's how it should work. And I would never – I've had the opportunity to go direct before that, that other property I was mentioning in the Midwest. Uh, I knew the owner as well. He used to drink at the local watering hole, and he had said to me, the keys are here. Take them anytime you want and away you go. I never did it. Never even crossed my mind. I would never do it. I did ask my mate occasionally, oh, you're heading, when are you going? See if I could to uh, get a bit of a crank. But I never took him up on that offer because it's not my access. I'm only there because my mate took me. One one thing people have said to me and it's been said to me on the podcast was, you know, it's really hard to get private access. One thing that's really easy about private access is losing it. 100%. I think that's sort of underrated. The hardest part, like, is winning over the farmer and, and getting access and being regular access, sort of unadulted access. You know, I've got some properties where I have to let them know. I have to ask first, and then if they write back, say, you know, I'm going to be in this paddock. Is that okay? And then there's all that. So what I'm really looking for is unadulted access, where it's just, hey, Dodge, you can come whenever you want. You don't need to let me know. I still do anyway, usually. Uh, just so if there's a vehicle parked. When I went out with Matho, we actually split up vehicles, parked one at the top, one at the bottom, and I wrote on a note. This is Dodger's car. It's parked down here. Uh, we'll be back at this time, and here's my phone number. And then I put the same note on the top car and then text the owner. But, yeah, it's really hard. If you just do the wrong thing, lost. And if someone else does the wrong thing, they're with you. I've experienced that too. I've lost property through someone, through no fault of my own, through someone that I took to a property. So, And it was one of my best properties. I'd like to know your thoughts here, especially in writing that article, Ben. That example you just gave us where you said you met the bloke down the pub and he said invited you there. What if you were just down the pub and, I mean, this is I'm, – I'm being devil's advocate and it, this would mean the stars would really have to align here. But what if you were down the pub having a chat, landowner goes, hey, mate, um, you're a good bloke. You've been talking about hunting. Oh, come on. You can come onto my property. He's given you the address and it's the address that you'd hunted on with your mate. Is that – change it is it the same like i haven't really got an opinion i just what are your thoughts it doesn't change anything 
It's still, I say, ah, I know it. It's the place with the something, something cottage and the cabin and the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mate is so-and-so. We went out there, had a cracking time. You got a great setup out there. Yeah, yeah. And I usually would just say, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. I'll get in touch with you. And I would then report to my mate and say, ah, funny enough, I bumped into Robbo at the pub. He invited me back out there. Obviously, I didn't accept the invitation because it's your access. But so it's all above board because if- if my mate thinks I'm doing something untoward and gazumping him or undercutting him, then he's going to resell me anyway. So, yeah, and that probably actually got sold, and I don't think I went back. I think I went back once more, and I still have a clear conscience about it, but I've been with that mate to other properties, um, so I have no regrets at all. And it probably strengthens a relationship with that farmer if both of the people coming have been invited anyway and you weren't just a plus one of the hunter. You, you're both, you know. His his invitees. So. It also it also strengthens your relationship with your mate. That, that I know that that bloke would invite me anywhere because I've got runs on the board proving that I'm not gonna not gonna gazump him, not gonna undercut him. So yeah, it strengthens that as well. Talking about strengthening friendships and being invited places, Ben invited me out to the middle of nowhere to do a fence for him, and tried to organise me to go on a hunting trip while I was out there, which still hasn't happened. And I think that was about three years ago, Ben. So I'm not sure how strong our relationship is going forward. Look, it's on the wane. Uh, if I'm being honest, it's it's fading. Um, you know, you can't maintain these things. I got a very tight circle of friends, and look at the moment you're outside it. And you know, I feel bad about that in some ways, in other ways, really not. Uh, it wasn't for this podcast, I probably would never speak to you ever again. No, he he actually, that was the bloke who ended up mustering goats and just canned all shooting altogether. But that, you chose to go home early, if I recall correctly. I said, it's all booked, it's organized. Chose, I just finished the fence too quickly. So what happens when you hire a professional. And that would have allowed for more hunting, not less. This is another problem. You should stick to sandwiches. The thing was, you chose to go home early and forfeited the hunt. That was your choice. And that is true. It has not happened. I actually, I do, I must hit him up for that again. But he, when he's mustering goats out there, he just doesn't want any disturbance at all. Um, they were just worth too much on the hoof. He's hiring choppers and and uh, so that's why that's on a temporary pause, that property. What a loss of a good property. Yeah, cool. So um, I think, geez, I've been having a lot of emails from listeners and they have been going all the way back to episode one and saying, Hey, we're still waiting for Dodger's story. So we've got a bit of a new segment at the moment. Dreaming with Dodge. I love it. That's my favourite bit so far. So, Dodge, in reference to you getting stuck on the side of a mountain and Nelly copping it with, well, sorry, copping it with hypothermia. Yeah, I forgot that I didn't get into that one. I don't know, something must have Interrupted me and stopped my story, but it was a sandwich. Let me guess. Did you get distracted by a sandwich? Let me guess. Let me take a wild shot in the dark. Was it a sandwich? Came between you and a thought? Uh, no. Uh, Hashtag solid <laughs> eater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my second favourite bit. We've hit a new high. I love it. We're on the up and up. This is the way to go. This will bring the crowds back. Yeah, well, I'm sorry my story won't. There's more to come to. Right. I'll set the scene. It was my second year guiding in Canada, British Columbia. I had a partner with me who was the wrangler and I was the sort of guide. With well, I had the guide experience and he had been to the property longer or before out in this area. So we decided that we'd flip a coin and he won, which meant that he was going to pretend he was the lead guide and I was the packer for this trip. 
And so I would back him up on decisions and, and we would sort of sidebar and have the conversations, but I would, from the client's point of view, it would appear as though he was the lead guide. And that was fine. We were, you know, teaching each other and he was teaching me the area and I was teaching him some guiding tips. Probably should have taught him some earlier than this, but there was a, a series of, I wouldn't say poor decisions, but definitely ones that I wouldn't make again from a learning point of view. We were mountain goat hunting. It's always steep. It's usually right at the top somewhere. The goat hunting starts when the sheep hunting stops is a good saying that we learnt over there. So we were horseback hunting. We'd left camp in the morning and reasonably early, probably, you know, 9.30 in the morning after some porridge and sandwiches were made, but lunches were packed and we just were going on a day hunt. We headed out on the horses and we pulled up on the side of a mountain in some thick timber and we were going to just walk up to the crest of the hill. So we tied up the horses and we were in hunting mode then. So we, I'd stripped back and just took – I had a light backpack on and in it consisted of probably uh, two snack bars, um, some light summer gear and three knives, a camera, probably some other knives. And that was about it because we were just hiking up to the top. Now, we got to the top. We saw some goats and they were probably like a kilometre away. So we decided to keep pushing. Yeah, no, when you when you're saying the top of the mountain, like what are we talking here from a size point of view? I'm gonna raid my memory here and say that one was probably around five thousand, six thousand feet elevation. Um as far as height, it's hard to explain because we don't have about two thousand meters because we're in Australia. Yeah, because seventy million feet means nothing to Australian audience, mate. Let's try and keep it metric, old son. What's Kosciuszko? I think Kosciuszko is about 2.2 k's high. Sorry, did I cut you off there, Matt? No, I'm shaking my head because you're back to feet. Yeah, yeah, 76 million feet, which equates to about 43 metres. No one knows. doesn't matter. Our 1% of audience in the US that listen, like, and the 98% here in Australia are sitting there going, what the hell are feet? So if you took 7,000 steps with toe to heel, toe to heel, that's the height of Kosciuszko. It would take you some time to do it. Uh, I implore anyone to give that a go, but this is a story from Canada. Yeah, you'd have to have some. <laughs> How would you manage what you got to do? It's also important you need to levitate because you got to be horizontal with the ground because it's not up the side of the mountain. You got to go directly vertical. So, in addition to heel toe, heel toe, I sort of feel that if you were able to levitate and keep heel-toe, heel-toe reference going, you could probably work out the 7,000 feet to metres conversion. That's just me just wildly speculating. I feel that that person probably has the ability to do the calculation. For everybody else, let's just let's just not even worry about it. I don't even care. 60,000,110 feet. I just want to play the opener for this. I'm pretty sure it was like Dodger's Dreamtime stories, not... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, you do interject a little bit. Uh, where was I? So the problem is my watch at the time uh, gave me elevation in feet and inches and you asked what it was and that's what you get from my memory. So we'd seen some more goats. We're like, well, that's a kilometre away. We can do that. It's only sort of 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We pushed on. And as we got there. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, How far away? <laughs> <laughs> you mean mile. 1.6 miles, don't you? <laughs> 1.6 miles, I believe, is a kilometre. Yeah, sorry, I got really confused then. 
Yeah, because I was there, I was with you in BC, as we call it, not British Columbia, but we're flitting now between metric and imperial, and it's doing my head inside. Well, that's going to continue because that's what happens in my brain. It does flip between both. I apologise. But what I'm trying to do is increase the 1% listenerage in the States to maybe 2%. Yeah, there was a mathematical error too, Yeah, which was we got 1% listeners in the States and 98% <laughs> in Australia, so there's 1% we can't. Aliens listen to this freaking thing. <sighs> no, we got New Zealand. And Sweden? No, we've got about 14 different countries in there, thank you. And uh, on that, I actually forgot to mention and say thank you, listeners, because we actually got, for our first 30 days, we were in the top five on Apple Podcasts for the hobbies, and I think we were inside the top 10 for uh, wilderness on Apple Podcasts. So, our yeah, geez, some really good stats there. So we're really happy and thank you again to our listeners. But Dodge, continue. Apologies for interrupting. Yeah, climbing up to number two in most interjected stories is Dodge's <laughs> hypothermia story. So, <laughs> so where, how many feet and inches was I? So, uh, <laughs> look, the client shot a goat. The client, you, you're ruining it. But the client shot a goat. What was Go. the shot? What distance was the shot? Oh, no, no, don't ask him that. So, I'm not going to put up with that. Oh, no, what on. distance is he going to give this in? Parsecs <laughs> or something like Star Wars. <laughs> it was eight furlongs. <laughs> so, no, on, on serious note, when we're talking the shot here, so quite high elevation, 300 metres away. Yeah, roughly 300 metres shot. Yeah, yeah. So at... That attitude, bullet drop, consideration, ballistics. Are we thinking Not about that, issue. or are we just shooting? That's his issue. No, you just go. Hey, there's the goat. <laughs> Shoot. Doesn't do technical. Not sure if you picked that no, up. Doesn't do technical. I struggle to do feet and inches and meters and centimeters. No. So I would say that's a. A YP, not an MP, which means it's a you problem, not a me problem. <laughs> you can use that. I quite like that one. the The shot was reasonably easy. That wasn't the hard part. What had happened. 25 to an hour and a half before that was we'd left our backpacks at a point on the side of the hill. I carried mine, but the other boys, the lead guide, we'll call him, inverted commas, left it on the side of the hill with the clients because we were going in slowly. We were getting very close. But the problem was the goat kept moving. So as we kept moving, it kept moving, and then we were like an hour away from our backpacks. And guess what was in the backpack? The knives, the cameras, all the things we needed to cape out this animal. So crystal clear, clear, bluebird day, animal dies. As soon as the dies, the thunder and lightning rolls in, the clouds move in, a huge storm come over, and it started snowing while we were waiting for the uh, the uh, guide to head back and grab the backpacks. Um, so we couldn't do anything. We couldn't start gutting or anything because he hadn't taken photos. So we were freezing, waiting. The gutting the photos ensued. We'll put one of those up on the socials. Pretty cool. Um, I was actually wearing some Hunter's Element gear at the time, which was interesting and a story in itself and actually feeds into this story, I suppose, but we'll get into that at the eighth interjection in a minute. But when we were gutting the animal, we actually made a, a hole inside. Well, while we're taking the photos before we gutted, we made a hole in the side of the guts and we'd put our hands in there to warm up for a minute and then we'd come back out to take some more photos, put our hands back in, not all at the same time, just one at a time. But that way, the animal was still warm at that point. So skinned out, full body cape because you don't really do anything else on a mountain goat. 
and took as much meat as we could. The problem was now it was like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, still daylight, although the storm had rolled in and knocked out the sunshine. And we started traversing. We couldn't go back. We thought it would be quicker to go a different way. That's what had happened. We ended up trying to just go straight down a gully. We ended up going down waterfalls, down rock slides, down snow on the edge of like a little glacier thing. Then we ended up cliffed out on the top of a creek. So this creek was probably, you know, 30 metres deep, which is whatever it is in feet and inches. Then we went along the side of that and it was super slippery and there was a one tree that had fallen over across the creek, again, quite high, and was touching, still touching both sides. And we sort of said, oh, we can get across that, like they do in the movies. Terrible decision, very dodgy with death being below it. And we got across. But the problem then was we were on the other side and we were cliff facing. By this time, 10 o'clock at night. You're packing out the animal? You're packing out the meat? You're packing out the full cape? Was that evenly distributed between the three of you or...? This was not a return trip. So generally the clients bring a backpack that's large enough to fit two sandwiches and a bottle of water. I had a decent-sized backpack and it was reasonably empty going up to it. So I had the full cape, full body cape, and probably a leg in there from memory. And then uh, the other fella had uh, you know, a couple of legs and backstrap, and then the hunter had a little bit of meat. It's a lot. It's a lot of weight. Pretty heavy pack. It is. Full body mountain goat skin is, you know. I probably my backpack probably weighed forty five or so kilos, so it was awkward. And I had a good pack though, Stone Glacier sixty five Archer it was, and yeah, it's a good pack, but loaded well as well. Got across the creek, and it was ten thirty at night by this time, dark, raining, sleeting, and I was hands in front of my face going sideways across a cliff, hanging onto a tree root, and I slipped, and I was literally hanging on one hand on the tree root. I'm doing the signal like I'm. If no, no one's watching at home, but trying to relive this in my mind and slipped. And I was hanging on by one hand off the side of this cliff with like Jumanji sort of raging water underneath and doesn't really invoke me with happy memories at the time. And I and I was in front at this point. So prior to that, about an hour earlier, I said, righto, I'm taking roll now. I'm taking the lead. This is dangerous. Question. Yeah, one hand was on the route. Where was the other hand? Hashtag solo eater. Did you have a candy bar? Look, we had consumed our candy bars whilst trying to stay warm, Matt. This is quite a serious story now. I'm talking like a life and death situation. I'm sorry. Uh, My apologies. It was worth it. (laughs) Uh, Yes, this is nearly solo dire, solo death. Um, Is there any other type? (laughs) So you were holding on, you know, the root with one hand and. Got, Got across that one and that was pretty scary to be fair. And got across the other side and I said, no, we're calling it. We're staying here the night. This is not safe. We're not proceeding. And the hunter thought this was amazing. He thought this was the most brilliant thing that had ever happened to him. He was having so much, in getting so much enjoyment out of, you know, the outdoors and being wet and in the snow and he'd shot a goat and it was just so exciting for him. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is it. I'm done. This is where I'm going to die, on the side of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. We had no idea where the horses were except they were downhill from us. We had no food. We had no shelter. I only had my summer gear on. I had no rain gear on. So I'd been wet and cold. Um, I had no really, this was early on in my career, so I had no proper first aid kit set up for temperature issues. I had, you know, your standard blister and that sort of kit. 
stitches and whatnot, but no thermal blanket. So what had happened was, again, a tree had fallen across the river and we'd pulled up camp. When a tree falls over and the roots come up, it creates a hole in the side of the ground. And we thought, you know, beautiful place to set up camp as much as we could. And we started a little fire down in there. We had no way to keep the fire going more than twigs because we had no axe. This is another reason I carry the axe everywhere with me now. We had no axe, so we could only break branches. Really hard to start a fire with everything covered in snow as well, but we got that done. And I was... I still had to cape the animal out. I still had the head in. So I was sitting up till just past midnight caping the head out on this thing. My, I just remember the pain in my hands was so sore. I just I couldn't feel them, but they were moving. It was like they were moving from memory, not from nerves, and I suppose that's memory anyway, but it was it just there was no touch feeling. I'd taken off my gloves at this point because there was no benefit to them. The fire was going, and we all took turns in sleeping next to it and keeping it going. And I remember waking up at one point and I could smell a lot of smoke and it was starting to get pretty warm and I thought, someone's really stoked this fire up. We're going well here. What had happened was the base of the tree had caught a light because we're burning an old stump hole and the whole thing was like a ball of fire right next to where we were sleeping and everyone was asleep. So this was like 2 o'clock in the morning and I woke everyone up, bailed out, and we started hiking down the mountain, mountain, and I couldn't feel my toes. I couldn't feel my hands. My thoughts were fuzzy. My eyes were shaky. I remember getting down the bottom thinking, how did I get down there? I don't remember getting down. We got to the bottom. We found a creek. We knew where we were because we found a track, but we were still nowhere near the horses. We were probably two kilometers from them downstream. So we started another fire, and the client and I huddled, who was still smiling at this time and just enjoying the memories but I was not, and we huddled by the fire and tried to defrost one finger at a time. It just didn't work because, again, we could only start a tiny little fire. And about three hours later, he turns up with the horses and who had been tied to a tree for nearly 24 hours, uh, great horses, like just to deal with that. And in my saddlebags was a raincoat, which was not a whole lot of benefit because I was freezing, and a cliff bar, which even at the best of times, tastes like a turd wrapped up in a blanket. So go and play your hashtag eater. No, that would ruin it. You leave the funny stuff to us, mate. You keep going with your brush with death. Yeah. It, it nearly makes me upset thinking about it. It was just a really – Are we still talking about the, the snack bar? The, the cliff bar? bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have done with a block of chocolate. Oh, I thought uh, I'd have a lump in my throat then. I got all emotional. Yeah, that's the cliff bar going down because those things are hard to digest. But – the we made it back to camp. We rode back to camp and I actually we had a satellite phone in camp and I rang Mel, my wife, wasn't wife at the time, but and she didn't answer. All I wanted was to talk to her and tell her about it and she didn't answer. She had a phone on silent for like the one time she ever did and it was like four AM and it was next to her head and she didn't answer. I think she was working during the night and didn't have it back on loud. But uh so I went back in the tent and yeah, it it cost me, I reckon even still now, and this is like 2015, maybe 16, still now my internal thermostat is out. It's taken a lot, it's definitely better now, but going, you know, the year or so past that, if it was cold, I was extra cold. If it was hot, I was real hot. And it's only just starting to level out properly now, I suppose, or in the last year or so. So thank you, Mitch, for asking about the traumatic story that was my hypothermia story and i don't know whether i ever got 
like it wasn't diagnosed as proper hypothermia, but it, it took days for feeling proper feeling to come back in my hands. It wasn't frostbite. I didn't get that level, but and definitely the the haziness continued for probably about nine years. And I'm still feeling that in the my internal thermostat. So I still look back at it and go, that was a learning lesson. Like I, my backpack now is so full of so much stuff and everyone goes, why are you carrying that? And I, I don't bother telling the story. I just say because. You really, um, we don't deal with that stuff that often here in Australia, do we? I mean, look, on the news today, we heard, unfortunately, uh, a skier got off track and passed away or they'd found a body that sort of matched it. So it can happen here in Australia, but it's not the same temperatures that you experience over in the States and Canada and places like that. Like it still can get cold. It still can be quite dangerous. But I do feel that it's a lower risk here than over there. Uh, one of our higher risk things here is actually dehydration in summer, especially when hunting. People don't realize that. We might get into that in a minute. But the temperature thing, it actually doesn't need to be cold to get sick or hypothermia from temperature. If you're wet and it's 10 to 12 degrees, you're going to get sick. You're going to get freezing cold. That rips the temperature out of you. If you're dry and it's 10 degrees, you can survive. But I was wet. I was wet through, so it didn't matter what amount of temperature I was. I just nothing was warm. My, my core temperature was been, would have been so low. So yeah, we definitely don't. I mean, if you're backpack hunting in the Wanangatta down in the high mountains of Victoria, it's probably an issue. But you're also slightly closer to help generally. Although you might be at a reception, there's a good chance you're probably within a certain distance of roads. Not a whole lot of people go real deep backpacking stuff in Australia and that's sort of all we did over there. So uh, it definitely happens here. You can definitely get disorientated quickly. That temperature thing and being wet, uh, two weeks ago I was up uh, hunting with country on a block and it started to rain and it wasn't that cold. It was nine, seven, eight, nine degrees, but it was we were just on quads. It's a new property. We were just doing a recce. I was – body was warm. My hands were so cold. I couldn't operate the quad properly. I couldn't find the light switch. It was just like a like a lump, like a clump on the end of my hands. And we, we finally we, – we rode for another two hours and they, they literally sort of froze in position, not froze as in temperature, but were locked in position and I was operating things with my thumb. It took 45 minutes on the drive back to his house. I had tingling in my fingers and it's not nearly as good as – that was a cracking story, by the way. All other joking interjection aside, I'm sure that's worth – waiting for all that time. That was a cracker. But I, my fingers were tingling for 15 minutes down my left arm at the point where I was telling my mate at the UHF, he said, I think you might be having a heart attack, Ben. Anyway, I wasn't, but it was that was just from that, and that's one-tenth or one-fiftieth of what you went through. Being wet and we were in wind because we were riding the quads, uh, bare, bare knuckles on the handlebars, and it was extremely unpleasant, and I was definitely impairment of use for my hands. Like you said, it's not a huge problem here in Australia. There's definitely, yeah, the dehydration one is one I've heard of people really suffering from here. I haven't particularly done a whole lot of Western hunting in thick of summer. Have you guys done hot, real hot stuff, West? No, but but on that, I've got in-laws that are around the Blue Mountains to the west of Sydney, and they've had, they've lived there, I think, 11 years, and an average of one person has died in a little patch of National Park there, I want to say little, it's not tiny, but uh, per year. They've had something like might be 10 deaths in 11 years living there. It's because people go down in the canopy, under the canopy, they're dressed in summer weight gear, as you were, and they think it's just a hike. They've got nothing in their pack. They've got no survival gear. 
their phone doesn't work because they're out of service down there and they get disoriented and die. And I am like you, totally independently, my pack is weighs 16, 18 kilos empty. There's just some survival gear. There's a bush saw. There's a ferride rod to start a fire. There's a, a music bar. There's some toilet paper. There's some survival gear. There's a snake bite kit. That stuff just lives in there with water all the time. And the thing is, I hope I never need three quarters of it. I've got a signal mirror. There's a whistle. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I hope I never need any of it. But if I do, I'd be pretty comfortable. Signal mirror. Oh, sorry. Just you looking at yourself in the morning to see if the signal's great. Let's just go back to there I was hanging by one hand onto a woot. It was really frightening. I was really frightened. And then I called my wife and she didn't <laughs> answer. And I just cried and cried. Yeah, that was good up to that point. As, as Matt said, what are you doing with the other hand? Don't forget his chocolate bar. <laughs> exactly. I was cliff. I was a bit dry in my throat and I had to swallow. <laughs> that was the worst part. I nearly choked on the chocolate. Jeez, I'd hate to tell you an emotional story where I nearly died. So on the um, so on, <laughs> so on, it, like heat stroke and whatnot. Do you actually know what it's called? We call hypothermia cold. Hyper, hyper, hypo is low. Hyper is high. Yeah, yeah, top of the class. I win. Correct. Nice, nice. So yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of people out there that don't really take that into consideration well, and you know, I guess it's a bit of a cultural thing. From Aussies, just go, hey, I'm used to dealing. With the heat, and here in Sydney, it's a lot different heat to when you get out. Especially, you know, I've driven from Darwin or Sydney to Darwin and then back. And when you're in the middle of Australia, that heat is a different heat. And if you're out there for long periods of time, not much shade, it's can go wrong pretty quickly. You got any tips for? I've got some drinking tips. Have you guys got any? Yeah, I'll have a rum and coke, thanks. When we're up in Townsville, Benny, it was. Hot. We. What did you have for water on that? Do you have a Camelback? Yep. It was unbelievably hot. That was one of the worst decisions of my entire life was to go to far north Queensland, living as I do in the high country. And was it was it was it February or something? It was something like February, and it was thirty eight degrees. Was the coolest day. The humidity was about a billion percent. It was unbelievably hot, and the dehydration. Everybody's clothes were just wet within 10 minutes of walking from your own sweat. So I don't know what we were losing in terms of moisture, but it was massive. And someone had cramps. Did, was it your your guided? It was probably the other fella in camp. Ha, yeah, had had uh, cramps, bad cramps from not drinking enough water. Like it was, yeah, it was so hot. Yeah, terrible, terrible, but fantastic hunting. And for the viewers that can see on the wall here is the, is the chittle. For those of you that are listening, that would be an incredibly boring part of podcast. But let me assure you, there's quite a nice chittle. We'll take a photo of your chittle and we'll put that on the socials. Just yeah. call Gosh, Ben's is, chittle. Just so seemed, everybody gets to see it. It all seems so silly now. I don't know why you'd even bring it up, but all right. <laughs> so one thing about the um, humidity, that this is the big issue and people don't, I guess, realise this or maybe they do, but when you are in such a humid environment where you are just lathering wet, your body's mechanism of cooling down is sweating, but it needs that sweat, that water on the skin's surface to be removed. If it's not being removed, your body actually can't cool itself down, and that's where you get in a lot more trouble. Now, when you sweat that much too, you start to run into issues with electrolytes in the body. So water is not great just water on its own. You really need to be replenishing those electrolytes, and we touched on it on a previous episode. I 
pretty much don't – when I go out, I ensure that I'm running at least a hydrolyte or a hydrolyte sports in my water just to make sure that electrolyte heat is going in there because the more you sweat, and I sweat a lot, but the more you sweat, the more you lose and you really do need to get back into you. Now, I have heard stories and, again – these are stories, so take that with a grain of salt. But I've heard of people going over and doing something like the Kokoda Track and doing that multi-day hike in really high humidity and temperature and only drinking water and their body stops being able to absorb a lot of the water because they don't have the electrolytes to make sure they absorb it. So, again, I'm not 100%. It hasn't happened to anyone that I know and things like that, but I do remember reading it somewhere and that is something that I don't think we really have a great grasp or an understanding of here in this country. One thing I've found with clients is, I mean, they love a camelback. It's not, we're talking Australian hunting here, and they love a camelback. But the problem with a camelback is you have no concept of how much water you're consuming. So, you can't see how much you're drinking. You don't know how much you've got left. And it also gets warm when it's on your back. I, I much, I do carry one, but I much prefer a wide mouth, like a Nalgene bottle and- that way you can, one, fill it up if you get the opportunity, but two, you can actually visually see and calculate how much water you've got for the rest of the day or the rest of the hunt. But also, I've consumed that much. I need to consume more or, you know, I'm running low. I need to top up. So, it's yeah, I just got to be careful with the, the camelbacks for that reason. The other thing is you leave water in them and they get they taste like crap. The uh, Yeah, be careful with that. And I, if you do go down the camelback path, I run a real wide mouth camelback because I can actually slip about seven to 12 Zuper duper's in there. So that's my electrolytes. And come lunchtime, they're fully defrosted, but your water's kept nice and cool. And then you've got a nice sugary snack to share around with your guests. I've also heard that one of the main things that helps you gag down a cliff bar. It's a real plus to have a couple of zuper dupers just to help wash down that chocolatey snack. There's no chocolate in those things. They're peanut butter and tar, I think. If they're interested in sending us a box, we'll, uh, we'll send them out to the listeners to test for us. Oh, yeah, geez, after you've just sprayed the old cliff bar. They possibly saved my life. Can you get them in Australia? No, they're definitely a thing. They they exist in uh, BCF and those sorts of places because yeah, right. they use them oh, really? in the fishing sank- section as anchors. <laughs> that was funny from you. It was. I wasn't sure he was going with that, but well done. It's taken seven episodes. We're into the eighth and he's made a joke. Well done, Dodge. Good stuff. And, and it landed. Good on you. Good on you. So, um... I think this is a night of firsts because uh, we're going to run a couple of different segments throughout the night. Oh, have you got a grab? Have you got a drop? I do. Yeah, of he comes. That's Media Watch. So this episode on Matt's Media Watch, one of the things that's struck me between episodes in the timeline is uh, a local council of mine, Campbelltown Council, have banned the use of 1080 poison. And just to clarify, I'm not a supporter of 1080 poison. I don't think it's a nice way to go, but I do see it as a necessary evil, especially in certain areas. So... The local council have banned the use of it on their land. So in places like the National Park and things like that, they have no jurisdiction and 1080 will still be used, but a growing number of councils are being petitioned by the AJP, Animal Justice Party. Now, I'm not against 1080, but I do feel we have a bit of an issue here if we are stopping the baiting of it and are we just going to let foxes run riot in those areas that were baited 
and now they no longer are. That's the concern I have for our native animals. And, you know, for me, I see myself as a hunter, but I also see hunters as conservationists. And this for me is quite alarming. And, you know, who better to throw it over to than our, you know, premium double S double A author, Ben Hunton. Yeah, look, just say that line again. It was just nice. It had a nice ring to it. But if you could just throw ultimate, premium's a bit wishy-washy. Let's just go ultimate, doubles, double A rider. Uh, yeah, do it again, I'll answer you. I've got a better one. Um, we, I'll throw that over to a published author, Ben Hunton. There we go. Yep, yep. Yeah, look, look, it was it was stronger than your last one. I still think you've got some work to do. But, you know, it's fine. I'll work, I'll work with it. Can I quickly ask... Why are they banning it? Is it just because it's a cruel way for foxes to die or is it more, I suspect, because domestic dogs are dying? Well, it's, yeah, a bit of both. So domestic dogs with it going in and that is an issue with 1080, but it's actually more on the back of the AJP petitioning and we'll go into it a bit more, but I know something came out again today that I guess the hunting regulations for uh, that were getting proposed to change some of the hunting rules for um, 16 to 18-year-olds and, and kids under 13 about licensing uh, that's been reneged, I guess, by the government to support the AJP again. So they've had a couple of big wins as far as I'm concerned going forward. And I know I was talking to Dodge about it off air and said, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that our lifestyle is is under threat and that my kids might not get the opportunity to hunt in future years. So, But let's get back to the fox, um, the, the 1080 baiting. So what are the AJP are planning to do with foxes? Well, they're not really planning anything. So from everything that I read in the article, it was just the 1080 is stopping period and those areas that once were 1080 are now not. Just want to let them live a happy life in the wild. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing Aboriginal cave paintings of, you know, foxes and rabbits and all that sort of stuff not. So, I mean, I think it's wonderful. And look, poisoning is a rotten, miserable way to go. If you've, So I live in the country and if you've seen a, a particularly domestic dogs, farm dogs, that take a bait, it's a horrible, absolutely horrible way to go. But when they're ripping 30 lambs apart a night, what do you – you need an alternative. So I think it's wonderful to ban it, terrific, but I, what's your alternative measure? I'd be interested to hear from them. You should get them on the show. The issue here is the areas that I feel they're doing it. So private people can still bait with 1080. And that's a positive, as you know, in the sense that if they've got a small block and they can't shoot on there and it's a means of control, yes, you could probably trap, but let's be honest, I think that trapping, they are pretty cunning as a fox is a reason for that. So it's not as probably effective as baiting. From my understanding, I might be wrong and I'd love to hear from any listener that knows that I'm wrong. But for me, just saying, hey, we're going to ban 1080 and in areas where they do use it, my experience is playing sport in the middle of a Liverpool ground, a sports ground of a night, and foxes rocking up and not being afraid of people, um, causing havoc. And I sit there and go, well, hold on. These things are surviving, thriving in urban areas. If you take out 1080, nothing's happening to them. They're just going to keep growing and we're going to have more more and more issues. Campbelltown LG actually has a reasonable number of koalas as well, they they have you know koala zones and things. So it'd be interesting to see what their numbers are in those areas. And again, what are they doing to minimise the impacts on that population from the foxes? Well, you don't have to worry about it. Out here, they've got signs that says koalas cross. The koalas get there and go get stuffed, you miserable foxes. So that's a play on words, Dodge. I'll have to draw you a little crayon drawing so you can see. See, I use cross 
as in crossing, and I also said cross as in angry. Anyway, it doesn't matter. My, two things, just to backtrack, Matt, is with the foxes. So I tried in vain to get a soft draw trap. You can still use them in the country to trap foxes and rabbits. They just can't have the big gorilla teeth. They've just got to have um, got to be smooth jaw and no good. So I spent a lot of money, 400 bucks on a cage trap, which is probably 400 mil high, 500 mil wide, 600 mil long. I set a game camera up next to it. After about three weeks of putting chook carcasses around the outside and into it, whatever, my mate ended up saying, yeah, you don't really want to catch these foxes. You're just interested in feeding the bastards because they would no way go anywhere near that trap. So total bust. It was a complete rip-up of 400 bucks. So they are seriously tough to control in a, in a trap. In, and I'm an amateur trapper, but no success at all. Whereas the 1080 – so out here, the 1080 is rife. I'm surrounded by uh, sheep properties, and so there's signs on fences. You get a letterbox drop, which says we're baiting in the area, and every year you definitely lose some farm dogs and some domestic dogs because the baits get carried over by, I don't know, by birds or the foxes make their way across or drop it in their mouth or drop it out of their mouth, sorry, and your domestic um, pets or farm dogs eat it, and that's basically the end of them. But compared to the damage that they do, uh, to sheep, to lambs particularly. It's lambing season at the time of recording here. Um, it's you got to do something. And until a better alternative becomes available, I'd like to know yeah, what the animal rights group are, are proposing. I don't know that there is a better alternative in those areas, and obviously they don't know either because they haven't done anything else about it. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the numbers do. They've obviously done some studies and they know how many foxes because they can – pretty well determined on the 12 that they see that there's so many foxes in one area, but be interesting to see if the numbers increase in their studies or they're going to say that they're staying stable. It's rubbish. They're increasing. And I mean, that's one thing too is data. When you're looking at data, you really, you can shape and shift data to make it sort of portray what you want to portray as well. So whilst data can be a really good, source it's also something to be mindful of that it can be adjusted and manipulated to sort of support an argument or a ideology as well but yeah it's an interesting one because as i said i'm not a fan of 1080 it's a terrible way to die and i'm not about seeing animals suffer but i'm just really concerned that if we start to go down this path we all see those infographics about how many animals native animals are dying or at the hands of feral cats and foxes, if we start to remove the 1080 because, the you know, it's not a nice way for them to die, we're not assisting our native animals as well. And that really concerns me because I don't, you know, they, they are an introduced species. Let's be real. They're never going anywhere. We're not getting rid of them. But we do have to keep numbers in check. And that's with all species. It doesn't matter if they're native, non-native. If you don't keep a species number in check, then you create problems that the environment can't sustain that many animals. They die anyway from probably starvation and things like that, which is probably a worse way to go than 1080. Yes, horrible, but you know, from my understanding, Ben, you'll probably be able to let me know this, but 1080, they die sort of within a day, yep. I believe, 24 hours, maybe 48 of the stretch. No, I think I would think even less. Domestic dogs or farm dogs, you, apparently they're very, very low number survive. You can take them to the vet and if they can give them the injection so they regurgitate anything. But basically, yeah, I think it's closer to 12 to 24. I've been on that property I mentioned before 
their dogs had it and went under the house and it was so i'm not arguing with you the dogs they had a couple of jack russells which they had farm dogs as well working dogs but they also had domestic pets they had taken some because they, they didn't personally bait it was a horse stud but they uh, the neighbors baited the dogs had got a hold of some they went under the house and were clearly writhing in absolute agony the cocky had two young kids ended up smashing through the floorboards of his house to try and get to these dogs the kids were there witnessing Terribly distressing, terribly unpleasant, awful death. No argument. Totally agree. But what's the alternative? It, still, you've still got the, you've got no natural predators in Australia for a fox. Well, we might we might have the Tasmanian tiger coming back, so that could fix the problem. But um, when honestly, when? if you look at that, haven't, haven't you seen that? They've got I think Chris Hemsworth, the actor, he's put it in. He's Ah, he's getting it. We're, we're going to rebirth them apparently in a petri dish. It's going to be great. So getting back to the the 1080, I, I get what you're saying. Horrible way to die, 100%. But you're saying 12, say, let's say 12 hours. How long does it take for an animal to starve to death? And not just one animal. Like if you've ever been out in rural areas that are overpopulated with a heap of kangaroos with very little water and very little feed, and those animals are starving. That's see. I think that's a much more horrible way to go. Personally, I mean, I always try and look at me and go, "Hey, would I want to suffer for twelve hours and, and pass, or would I want to suffer for three weeks and pass?" It's a, a tricky one to be able to put yourself in those shoes, but it's not nice either way. No brainer, hundred percent. You want twelve hours as opposed to three or four weeks. We've all we saw it in the drought. It was uh, mercy killings out here in the sticks with all sorts of wildlife that was just so thin. Yeah, you were doing it a favour. You were talking about ruse under licence or with tickets or whatever, tags. Absolutely brutal to see these things, just a bag of bones. Absolutely miserable way to go and far more drawn out out than taking a bait. We had the opposite situation then. We were up in Townsville after the drought had broken and when we were out in the middle of the middle of the property, 120,000 acres, we came across a moral dilemma. We found some cows stuck in mud. Now, we weren't in a situation where they were accessible by vehicle. We weren't in a situation to be able to get them out as much as we did try. We only had paracord and a few different things, and we did try, and we got one out. When I say stuck in the mud, this hadn't happened recently. They were they were on death's doorknob. They had been in there for several days the flies were they were like they were fly blown at the back. They were living in their well, standing in their own crap and we and they just couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't eat, they couldn't drink, they were stuck. And we made the decision to leave that cow and head back to the farmer. And we ended up getting him and returning and euthanizing that cow. And the reason for him like we couldn't get it out, we couldn't tow it out. But he said he'd actually lost more cows to the rain than he did in the drought. But again, your ethical question of how long is long is a better time to suffer? Well, obviously zero is the best amount. But the uh, he yeah he chose to put those out of their misery and and get that done because they just weren't going to make it. Even if he did get to tow them out, they'd been in there for that long. They were super dehydrated and not going to recover. And they were a bag of bones. And we actually did did drag one out with a side by side or the ute. Then we tied it up and dragged it up put it in the shade and we we let the farmer know and he came back the next day and shot it it was still alive but it was there's just they couldn't they couldn't support their own body weight they'd been stuck in the mud for so long 
and the muscles had atrophied or atrophied so much that they couldn't they couldn't support their own body weight. So we parked it in the shade. We left it alone, and he came back. He said, "Oh, look, I'll give it overnight." But he went back and yep, shot it the next day because it was yeah, it was cactus. It was just it was brutal. I've gone full circle from your ten eighty question, but I, I just yeah to answer that, the least amount of suffering is better. Obviously, ten eighty is not the only option. It's definitely one option. Be interesting to see how the numbers continue. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm curious to see what happens, but no one wants to see suffering, even though we I think we've briefly touched on it previous on the podcast. There's a great Instagram uh, account called uh, what is it? Nature is metal. Nature is metal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was watching one the other day of a deer, I think it was actually, with must have been in Africa, maybe. They look like savannah dogs. And there was a pack of them dragging this thing up a hill and just they were just chomping on it. And it was just, you know, I was just sitting there going, hmm, would you want to go by that or 1080? That was the first thing that came to mind with this 1080 question. Like, as I said, very interesting, hard to, you don't want to see anything suffer, but the reality is that life begets life and that's going to happen either way. So, yeah, but thanks for the opinion, boys. I, uh, I don't think everyone's ever going to see eye to eye on this topic, and that's fine. I think the more discussions we have, the better, because it's something that you know we learn from. And one of the things I have said multiple times is I want to learn and continue to learn, and by having discussions, I'm able to pick holes in what I thought was correct and hopefully grow as an individual. And so just before we let that go, Matt, so has it, has it gone out of the conversation that native animals versus feral? versus imports, no one doesn't seem to be a topic anymore. It was a big deal 10 years ago. Now it seems like foxes have got the same rights as as our local animals. I guess it depends who you're talking to, and I think that's where a party like the Animal Justice Party, whilst, you know, we're hopefully going to have a representative from them on the show in the near future because I'm really curious to understand their thoughts on it and – it always strikes me a little I, – I can't fathom their viewpoint because nature, if you just watch nature, take humans out of the ecosystem, which we can't do. We are a part of the ecosystem. But if you just watch nature, nature's not cruel. It just – nature's nature, but it comes across for us as cruel. It's brutal. Oh, exactly. But for me, I don't understand someone who has the ideology that aligns with the Animal Justice Party because nature does that naturally and it's it's as old as time and I don't get how we think that we shouldn't be involved in that per se, that we shouldn't hunt or we shouldn't eat animals. And that's the question I really want to pose to them is, what is your answer? You want to live on a plant-based lifestyle, which means wiping out the environment to make land available for crops, which is then smashed with pesticides, insecticides, and all what insects don't rate. And those type of animals, we don't care about them because they're not cute, fluffy. Yeah, yeah. You, you, but that's the questions I want to ask. You're starting to wander into, into uh, fur, not fins. So why is it that there's 57,000 fishing shows on TV and very, very few hunting shows? But to, to very quickly backtrack that nature's metal thing is I have personally been on a muster and we were just mustering some sheep and it was a fairly large mob, a couple of hundred animals, and they went over 
uh, over a bluff and down. Uh, probably bluffs overstatement, but over the crest of the hill and went down. By the time, five, six minutes later, by the time we had gone over the top of that, we were on quads and horseback, the foxes in the area had cut a pregnant ewe's stomach open, ripped it open, and had eaten the unborn fetus out of that ewe's stomach. And I saw that with my own eyes. You want to talk about brutal. So, And what, what are letting foxes go unchecked? What's that going to do to our native animal species here in Australia. I mean, feral cats, There's a there was a fabulous study about what value your native animal or native animal loss has, and I forget the details of it, but we rated it something like, look, I want to say $20 million a year, which was uh, local animals being killed by feral cats, feral dogs, foxes, et cetera. And, and we, but we rated our bird life at a dollar a bird, whereas the overseas model did it at $10 a bird which would obviously make those figures astronomical. So leaving foxes unchecked because they're a living entity, which I get, and let's face it, they're here to stay. I mean, that's the other thing now is that we're not going to get rid of them. We, we, we can't. We've been spectacularly unsuccessful trying to do that. You know, look at the cane toad or there's a million examples of it. But we don't have apex predators in Australia. You get the dingoes, that's it. So what are these foxes going to do and, and a different style of predator – what are they going to do to these native species that are defenseless against them? You made a couple of really good points there. and Yeah, thanks. Let's just dwell on that for a moment. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we should gloss over that point. What point was it, Ben? What was your favourite point there that he's going to focus on? Look, let me start from the beginning. Once there was a big bang and then the earth cooled and then the dinosaurs came. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, I interrupted. Go on telling me about how terrific I am, please. Well, you made a couple of good points. And one of those is 1080. We're backtracking here to 1080. To protect some family pets, cats and dogs, that's fantastic. At how many more sheep die at the hands of foxes compared to accidental poisoning from 1080, is it justified to ban it? And it's it's a fact of life when you live out here. There's a much higher chance of snake bite, there's a chance of taking a bait. It's just part of the – I don't know what the actual figures are, but I'll guarantee that farm dogs and domestic dogs in the bush be far short of lifespan. You've got so many more things that are trying to kill them out here, and 1080 is just one of them, but nobody complains about it. Like, it's a fact of life. Nobody – I mean, we complain about it. It's heartbreaking for families, but we know that it's just – without it, as you say, well, and what about then the lives of the sheep or the, the lives of the lamb, lambs that they kill, that the foxes kill? Where do they rate in the equation? Now, we've personally lost probably 40 or 50 chooks to foxes. And I don't really even blame the foxes, but they can't help themselves. They will eat two whole chooks, but they'll kill six or eight more because that's their instinct. And again, I get it. That's how they're built. But so what So what are the lives of those domestic chooks worth when we've lost, yeah, 50 of them? We lose eight at a time if we leave them out on a rainy day because the foxes have learned that the farmers aren't out on those miserable rainy days a lot of the time. So you just can't let your chooks out on overcast rainy days because the foxes know no one's going to be around and they will just absolutely wreak havoc. Eight or ten chooks strewn feathers everywhere. Uh, yeah, no, it's a really interesting one when you look at it like that and you break down the differences between is it, you know, is obviously a, a sheep and a lamb is not as important as this fox. But I also do then look at the areas in the council that are banning them and they are Sydney metro areas and 
you know, I think it's a bit of a, a tactic on the AJP's part that let's target the areas that are disconnected from, I guess, farms and the bush and where their meat and things come from. And essentially they have little to no experience of death of an animal for them to be able to eat and whatnot, what goes on. So I do think it's a bit of a marketing tactic and I think the AJP is very cluey when they come to who they target, how they pitch. And I jumped on their their site because they said they got a win that they uh, about the hunting thing today and all I read was just people saying, oh, it's barbaric, it's this, it's that. And I don't, I don't know, I feel that barbaric is just dumping a heap of poison all over your crops and, you know, for anyone out there that's ever grown their veggies at home, geez, we get wiped out by snails and moths and all these different things when we grow a crop because we don't cover the things in pesticide. So when you have farms that don't get touched, their crops don't get touched, they can have a really good harvest and hopefully make money to survive, what are they doing? What's going on in your crops for them to be protected? So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Did you notice the photo that they had attached to that story when it came out? Oh, remind me. I. It was a possum with an arrow in it and they were saying, you know, we've won, we've won, we're not allowing kids to go hunting in state forest. And, you know, obviously clickbait photo but implying that, that was shot by a junior with a bow, and that's that's the that's what they're implying. I mean, though, if you look into that photo, it's probably been shot by someone who got given a terribly undersized bow for Christmas and didn't know what they were doing with it. Definitely not by a hunter. So yeah, they love stirring on emotions, and unfortunately, I think they're winning on that side. Are you saying that the animal rights movement is something other than ethical? What? Come on. Of course they are. And the thing is when you live in the country is that the people that make the decisions are the tree huggers in Sydney and Canberra. And that's just how it is. And that's fine. That's just the nature of things. Come on out. Come out to my neighbours. I invite them all. Come out to my neighbour's sheep property. Come and have a look at 30 lambs that have just had the guts ripped out of them and, and then see what you think. And then see what you think is cruel. And, again, we, we've, I think we've, we've presented a balanced argument, which is that 1080 is not a great solution. It's not the best thing. I think it's the best we got at the moment. I hope there's something better coming down the track, which is very quickly reminds me I was in a meeting in Queensland and there was a big, big group and it was being hosted by an animal rights person. They're saying that what we're going to do with the, with the foxes is we're going to get them together and we're going to sterilize them. And some old cocky from at the back of the room said, Lady, they're eating our sheep, not screwing them. It actually no, no, takes me cute. back. I don't remember we had the mouse plague. What was that about 12 months ago? Yes, not that long ago. And I remember seeing oh, it was some animal activist saying, let's just catch them and rehome them. And I just sat there going, you obviously have not seen any of the video footage of these thousands of things and the stories coming out where there's babies and kids in their bed getting overrun by mice and things. I just, it just sounds so horrible and you have such like people that are just so removed from it that they're saying catch them and rehome them. You don't need to kill them. Put them in their house. So on that. So this, I've got what's called a sock, which goes in the microphone, which is a foam-filled thing which lives in my shed. It reeks of mouse wheat. Hang on, I'll put it back on. Absolutely reeks. Now, I lost probably 500 bucks worth of equipment 
of all sorts, shapes and sizes. People lost hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of farming equipment in the mouse plague. It wasn't just an inconvenience and having mouse poo in your pantry. They were everywhere. But so here's the next thing. So what do we all do? And we ran out of baits. In fact, Dodge, I was coming down and visiting you. I thought, I'll buy some um, rat and mouse bait down here because and bought some because the plague wasn't as bad. So we're not talking about banning rat and mouse bait. That's totally fine. But 1080, oh, no, not for foxes, whereas the the mice were and are unbelievable. I lost all sorts of gear, and some of the gear I won't discover that I've lost for five years. Some bits and pieces of equipment and tools and et cetera, I won't discover until I go to get it out and realize that they've just ruined that, chewed through it and destroyed it. But that's okay. Yeah, that's acceptable. Just take them back to someone else's house and release them there. It just shows, and this is why I want to get someone on from the AJP because I want to try and understand the ideology. Is it that they have grown up in the city and they have zero experience because I don't feel anyone that has a rational viewpoint could possibly come from the country where they've grown up seeing the reality. I think it has to be that they're removed from it to make decisions like that or have that understanding. So, yeah, very interesting. Promise me you'll let me be a fly on the wall for that one. Oh, I can't. Do, I, I, I can't. I don't know. Anyway, the answer is yes. I'll be here. I accept. Thank you, Matthew, for your very generous offer, <laughs> and I accept. I will be here with bells on. All right. So, uh I'm thinking we jump into some Q&A here. We've got one I'll just pull up at the moment. I think you'd be a really good one for this one, Ben. So Shots fired. I love all of those. So tonight's question uh, comes from a new listener, Nathan. Shout out to Nathan. Thank you for the email, mate. It was two parts, but we're only going to touch on one tonight because we're going to – he's asked about whistling in foxes, but we're going to hopefully have a guest who – Yeah, and look, I really prefer 1080 Poison. I really like to just spread that around the house and in the bedroom and everywhere else. Let's just 1080 them. Don't worry about whistling them. Yeah. Drive through Bondi, mate. That'll sort them out. Could we – you know those like T-shirt cannons where they shoot out like rolled up T-shirts? Could we do that with 1080 instead and just knock out the foxes like that? That might be the way to go. So the question from Nath is on our last episode, we were talking about a Category A licence would probably be granted on a 25-acre block and he's asked – is there a minimum size block to justify both Category A and Category B? Ben, what are your thoughts around this? I don't think there legally is. I know Matho, who's more qualified than I, spoke about it, and I don't think that they actually specify because there's 25-acre blocks and there's 25-acre blocks. You could have one in Bondi and you can have one at the back of Whoop Whoop where there's nobody around. And so I, I actually think that I, – I, and this stuff is usually very, very generic. The old rule about you can't uh, shoot where you can see like a built-up area is streetlights or within a kilometre from a road, I'm pretty – I've never found that law. I've looked for it and I don't believe there's any law that says you can't discharge a firearm within a certain uh, prescribed distance, as in metres or for you, Dodge, feet, inches and knots, furlongs, but of a, of a public road. I think it's non-legislation. So, I, from memory, it says five acres for a category A. But sorry, that's not a word. Non non-legislation. That's not a word. You mean non-legislative? Non-legislative. Is that what you're trying to say? This is non-legislation. Oh, this is non-fair. They're making fun of me again, Mel. This is non-fair. <sighs> anyway, I'm pretty sure it's not written in the rules that it's more 
the it's just the, up to the decision of the people at the firearms registry. And from memory, when I did mine, I got knocked back initially because I had a 25-acre property listed as my property to shoot on. And they knocked it back saying, you need one larger than or equal to 50. And that wasn't written anywhere other than that's what their decision was at the time. So I did that. I got another letter and it got passed through. So my answer to that is I don't think it is legislation. However, I feel it is discretionary up to the people, which I don't agree with, but they're the ones that unfortunately make the rules. But wouldn't you just join a club? Join a licensed hunting club. Join a licensed shooting club. The AA is one. Put that down as your genuine reason. Just do it. Don't worry about making it as a prime producer or or your own property. Join a licensed registered hunting or shooting club. Have whatever you want. Use it in a safe way. Make sure you've got safe backdrop. All that sort of stuff with neighbours, which we touched on last time. But that's the easiest way, I would have thought. Yeah, that's the easy way around it. Uh, I spoke last episode about putting in a PTA and it took – 28 days to get approved and I made I think I feel I made a bit of an error in that when I was applying for it I justified and ticked the other box instead of I just I felt giving more information might be better and it was my fault and before I clicked send I went in a smart world this would just make complete sense and I'm gonna so what I did is I ticked the other box and said need a larger caliber to legally hunt deer in Victoria. Now, we touched on that last podcast. We said that the minimum requirements for red and sambra are 270 and above. So, obviously, I'm looking at a caliber that is above 270. And I put that down as my justification for needing another rifle. And that, that rifle is what I'm legitimately wanting it for. 28 days later, it got put into review so it had to go to a, a panel, I believe. So uh, I will say this though: I do like the new system on the uh, for the PTA. Oh, I think it was called Hunt. Oh, what, what's it called? Not Hunt. Anyway, and I picked other. The new website is so much better. Is it had all your correspondence? Told you where the application status. It was really easy to see. Far better than the last one. That was upgraded, and that was upgraded during the time that I put the PTA in. It took that long, but yeah. So end up being twenty eight days. It went to be it said um, to be adjudicated on. And I, look, I got the PTA anyway. But I sort of sat there and just went, "I'm giving you a legitimate reason. Surely you understand the caliber minimums in Victoria. Surely that matches with what we're doing. You know, like why." Was it so delayed when if I probably didn't tick that, if I just ticked the box, I probably would have got it back in three to seven days like every other one has, bar your first, obviously, takes a lot longer. So as a um, as a gun writer, I review a lot of firearms and most people probably possibly aren't aware that they've actually got to be transferred into my name. So I actually have to take ownership of that firearm. I don't pay for it. I pay for the transfer, which is then covered when the article, the review is, is published. The other that I should tick would be this firearm is for review. But the problem with that is it takes 28 days as opposed to if I just tick a genuine reason, another category B firearm, it gets processed in three to seven. And and that is legit because I, I keep some, some of the stuff I review, a lot of it I get sent. Some of it I've actually requested because I'm interested in it or something different. And in fact, but Dodge is actually going to purchase a, a firearm that I have reviewed which he asked me about, and I said, no, it's a good good bit of gear. So it's transferred into my name, and he is going to end up taking control of that, but it has to be all done. It's transferred 
from the the importer or the supplier distributor into my name uh, into the gun shop I should say then into my name then it's going to be overseen by a firearms dealer into Dodger's name so but the other which is what I should tick because it should be easier to say it's a firearm for review it's it's part of my job it's how I make a living but it's just not worth spending 28 days waiting for it everybody's under the pump it's a new product I've got to finish my review and send it on to the next person to review. So everything's pressurized. So it's the easier way, the quicker way. And it's not a lie, but it's just to say, no, no, it's just I require an additional firearm in that in that category and away I go. Speaking of said firearm, how did that review go? Did that end up being maybe on a – did it get back page or where was it somewhere? Dodge, I'm not sure if you're aware, but for the, for the listeners here, I'm holding up the May 2022 – cover of the SSAA Sporting Shooter magazine, and look who it is on the cover. So it is, it's a a straight pull shoddy. It was a cracking bit of gear. It was the um, pointer's budget, but it's got an offset um, straight pull to load the firearm. Cracking bit of gear, terrific photograph, really interesting review. Anyway, I'm, I'm too objective about it to speak of it. Hold on one sec. Can I just say that, Photo, you did you did look good. Thank you. But we could only see your eyes, mate. You look like Batman because the gun was just covering half your face. And he's got a hat over the top too. Yeah, that's not accidental. That's because that's my best feature is my sunnies and my Cobra. Actually, <laughs> we got a bit of a nose and a cheekbone. Jeez, that is your best angle, Ben. <laughs> and can I just say too that that after that photo was published, so this is when will this be released? This has been recorded now. When, how far away is this from release? This uh, five days. Okay, so we've just had Father's Day. My darling wife has insisted, and it had arrived that I bought a new Akubra to update that one, which is my work hat, which is looking sadly worse for wear. And I must say, when I do the AB comparison, it's hard to believe it's exactly the same hat uh, that one from five years ago. So not only is my best feature, my Akubra, my sunglasses. Next issue that I'm on the front cover, I will have a brand new beautiful Akubra, so we'll even improve that. Look, luckily I've got high cheekbones, which is sort of my best feature. It's the only feature you can see of me. It could be anybody. It looks like Spy versus Spy. Speaking of Dodger's Lady and the Tramp spaghetti reference from 1904, it looks like it looks like Spy versus Spy, which is in Mad Magazine. Those two crims, those two spies fighting each other because I am completely unrecognizable. It doesn't matter. I bought every issue that's been published in the Midwest. I've signed them all to Ben. You're the best from Ben. It's a great hit. Anyway, anyone interested in them, collector's edition, 300,000 issues, all at my place, available by special request. Contact this podcast for details now. And we'll throw a photo up on our social so you can see Ben's cheekbones. Exactly. Beautiful. Particularly the right one, which is the one they got. Yeah. So a question for you, Matt. You said you've got a PTA and it's come back. What are you going to use it for? What are you buying? Oh, look, we, ch- we we did speak about it on the last podcast. I was tossing up the 7 mil 08 and going into 308. Look, I have decided I'm going to go the 708. And the reason being, the reason being is that I stood back and went, we were talking about range days for the club. And going out and new people getting to shoot different calibers. And I just felt that 308, there's plenty of people in the club that's got a 308. How many have a 7mm 08? So, so you're taking one for the team. Yeah, well, look, I'm not against it. And I just went, you know, I think that's a really good caliber that not many people are going to have. And 
uh, look, I think it's a good one just to to test out myself. And let's be honest, eventually I'll get a 308 anyway. So it's not that big a deal. No, no, you you will be responsible for putting the 7 mil 08 on the map. This will be you. We will remember this podcast when Matt brought the 7 mil 08 back into the public eye and suddenly they've sold 37,000 units because you bought one and took it to a club day. So what's the hunting club? Winjagarabi Hunters and Anglers Club. Yes, I can't say it even when I'm sober, and I'm certainly not now. But this will be the day we look back and say, you know what? I remember that time when Matt put that caliber back on the map. It would disappear, and he fixed it right up. So good for you, one for the team. More important question, what what platform? What make and model? So just before that, you uh, if you've jumped on YouTube, Backfire, I love watching Backfire's reviews and things like that. And he is a massive fan of the 7mm 08 and talks about why, the, the fact being it's a 308 neck down. And so the recoil is far better. It's It shoots with a lot of power. It actually has a more feet per second coming out of the rifle and at distance as well, which is a good thing. So... There's a good little thing for us, I think, from, you know, just to test it out, I think that's quite a good one. So I will give a review to our listeners on the 7mm 08. I might even write a piece and see if I can get it in one of the uh, magazines or something like that. We'll wait and see. Maybe, I think I've got pretty good cheekbones too, so maybe I'll be able to get the right angle, good photography and do a bend. Low, low cheekbones, not good cheekbones, opposite of good, low cheekbones, very low, sunken eye socket, low cheekbones. Never going to happen. What you really need is you need to review it in the middle of winter in a balaclava. That's the sort of that's the sort of photo that would really highlight your best feature in ski goggles and a mask. That's what you need. Low cheekbones, no good. Actually, I've got a photo going up on the socials of me in a balaclava because the eyes are sticking out, and I've got quite blue eyes. I always get told I've got really nice blue eyes. It's a plug. I, for my I eyes, lose myself yeah. in them. So, getting back to the make and model, Ben, uh, I think at this stage I'm going to probably go a ticker. Again, I I really like my stainless light. Stainless synthetic? Yeah, stainless um, stainless light, synthetic stock. Uh, T3X. Yeah, T3X, yeah. So, I look, the last one I've had. Adjustable cheek piece? Love it. No, but I have pretty much got myself set with my other rifle. I know the rings I want. I, I use a high ring, 30 mil, obviously. So, the high rings just have it's that because scope. Because of your low cheekbones. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much it. As a nice. No, because your mounting position is a lot higher because your cheekbones are down next to the corners of your mouth. So, what happens is you've got your head way sticking up above. So, you need big high rings to make sure that you can get some sort of some sort of eye relief and sight picture there. I get it. it makes sense. Yeah. So, that's the one I'm going to be using. But, uh, yeah, hopefully my cheekbones. I, I actually probably should look at a cheek thing just because they are so prominent that I should have some sort of padding there to protect them. But, uh, yeah, that's a different story. What you need is an indent. You need the opposite. Everyone else needs a cheek piece that's higher. You need a lower che- – you need an indent. You need to get a router and just route out the stock, route out that synthetic stock to form a little cavity for that cheekbone to sit down level with the corners of the mouth like the Joker, and that makes sure that you can get your eye relief, which is about 200 millimetres, or as Dodge would say, eight inches above the the top of the, the stock, and that's where, you, where your eye relief is just spot on perfect, really high-rise mounts. Big tall mounts. That's that's the answer. Was that a compliment? I feel like you were saying that I could be sculpted, like a you know a, a nice sculpture over in Italy. I think he meant that you needed to be sculpted, which is probably not a compliment. Thank you, Dodge. Cheers. You can pay the money and go down to Beretta, and they will custom carve you a stock to suit your cheekpiece. 
your cheek. The big one with the 7mm 08, not a lot of people do them and it's not chambered in a lot of different rifles. So that is one of the downsides of that chambering. So uh, I know Ticket do. I haven't really inquired into too many other rifles. So I was pretty much set on the Ticket, but I might probably go to next time at the gun shop, have a good chat to them and, you know, see what other options I've got there. I was going to do that on the weekend. Our hunting club had a barbecue at Abella's, but I didn't get the chance. I had the little fella with me and, you know, typical two-year-old doesn't have a, a large attention span. So it was very difficult. I mean, at one stage, he was that desperate for attention. He even went to Dodge and got a cuddle. So I've got a photo of that. I'll probably throw that on the socials, but uh, not good taste, but... He was just desperate to get away from me. Once I saw chasing him around the uh, the shop. <laughs> now, the thing is with him, heart even looks like yours. Good high cheekbones, like really chiseled. Even at two years old, you can tell the difference. The thing is, so I'm not even sure that you're even vaguely related. But anyway, the thing is, the only reason you would not- It looks like his namesake. You Yes. The only reason you would not buy a ticker is because you want something different. And I'm not sponsored by them. I've got no- I've reviewed lots of their rifles- that stainless synthetic T3, T3X, the only thing I don't like about the ones with the adjustable, adjustable cheekpiece are those big, ugly thumb screws. So I threw those out the door and got some fitted bolts that were just nice and neat, lock tight on them. Because once you get it, you don't need to adjust it. It's it's done and it's set, it's fixed. They are so hard to beat. Value for money. Oh, I, again, you could argue that you want a wall, but nice piece of walnut, et cetera, et cetera. They are just fabulous. I've got about three of them and love them all. I can't fault them. So hard to go past. The only other one I was looking at, and I don't even know if they chamber in it, but I was thinking about the Browning X-Bolt. I do like the look of the Cerakoted one too, and I'm really wanting to go down the Cerakote pathway uh, for probably all my rifles actually. I'm, I'm thinking I just hear such good reviews about its hardiness and that's what you sort of want. Lack of barrel glare. I can't remember if we talked about this previously. The I remember we spent all this time on camo and gloves and all the rest of it, and you got this great big shiny beacon of a stainless barrel sticking out the end when you're fox whistling or deer stalking or doing whatever. And people spend all this. So, so I buy the neoprene sleeves. I've tried the tape, like the wraps. They all end up working their way up the barrel when you stick them in the gun bag. So I resold those. And I go the neoprene sleeves because you can just tug it back forward, um, which is something Dodge knows more about. But at least that camouflages it. But Cerakote, and there's a whole bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of those coats with the misspelt coat that you can have that all uh, like 0.3 of a millimetre or in Dodge's 496,000 of an inch uh, So he, just so he can stay up the conversation. The action still works. It loses all the glare. It protects it from blood and rain and, yeah, cracking alternative, cracking solution. I reckon, well worthwhile. Do you want to know what the thickness of Cerakote is? 0.3 of a millimetre. That's my guess. It's less than a mil. Point- no, it's 0.0005 of an inch. It's about 12 oh, micron. Stop doing the inch thing, you idiot. I don't care about the inch. It's so frustrating. Love of God, man. What is it in millimetres? That is meaningless to everybody. Oh. I love how he brings that fact up and we both are sitting here with absolutely no idea because it's 0.005 of an inch. I can honestly tell you it's meaningless. I clarified and said 12 micron. Yeah, no one knows what that is either. Keep going. One. Keep going. Come on, you're a sheep farmer. 12 micron is like your start of your fine level merino wool. Yeah, now we're talking thread count on Dodger's silk sheets, mate. Let's just focus. Go back to the little device there. 
but answer the question. Let's just have a look now. A little bit more Google is your friend, and let's just say, how big is there a millimeters on a rifle barrel? Take your time. Go to your own happy place. No rush. People have obviously turned off by now. No, we can we can edit. I don't have an answer. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I'm big on what you're saying there, Ben. Is that the yeah? It always sort of makes me question. Going, we worry about the wind and we worry about camo. And I've seen even people out there covering their face and all this, and then they've got this big barrel that's silver yep. that when the sun hits it. You, you can see it from a mile away. It glints. Yeah, it just baffles me as why more people aren't just going, hey, and I don't understand why the manufacturers are not just going, hey, instead of the blued version, let's just go more like a stainless and the other option Cerakoted. I don't either. And I've looked at having a lot of mine done again. I've gone the the, the cheap version, the tight-ass version, which is to neoprene wrap all of them. I do that to all of my firearms. As you, I certainly wear a face mask of some description, face veil, when I'm deer hunting just because nothing else in nature walks upright, you know, biped on back legs with a big moon head, like particularly dodge, like just gigantic, like a beach ball, like huge noggin. But why we spend all that trouble? And then that, that reflection you're talking about, nothing else in nature reflects that except water. It's like one of those dolls that used to be in the back of window of cars nodding along there. That just huge melon. Sorry, Dodge, you got an answer? Zero point zero two five four millimeters. Zero point so give it again, sorry. Zero point zero point zero two five. Just round it up. So zero point zero two five millimeter. That's rounded down, but whatever. Oh, it is rounded down. Five Oh, jeez. <laughs> he's so technical. He's hustling me about rounding it down when he's throwing in microns and inches. Yeah. yeah. No, thanks, yeah. Dodge. Yeah. 47 one-thousandths of an inch in America. Anyway, so I'm thinking the other one I really like, there's two other rifles I really like the look of at the moment. I do like the Weatherby Vanguard in the Blaze Orange, and I do like the Ticker, the Wild Boar Edition. That looks really good. I don't know a lot about them. And I'm not sponsored by Ticker. Just as a disclaimer, the thing that that I was just thinking about is too much camo on unrelated things. You don't need it on your knife. You don't need it on your rangefinder. You don't need it on any of that gear. You just don't. Quick stories. Country and I were hunting. We hit a mob of pigs. We are on the quads. He floored it. We got the end there. Shot a couple. Great. Took some photos. About to ride off. Realizes it doesn't have his rangefinder in his uh, mounted to his belt, his belt pouch. We retrace the steps. We spent probably 50 minutes looking to the point where I'm saying it's gone because I've completely lost interest in your rangefinder. It was camo on a rangefinder. We found it only because of his quad bike tire marks in the wet ground. Otherwise, we would never have found it. Why does it have to be camo? Don't make that camo. Put a bla- blaze orange stripe on it. Make it easy to find. All that stuff your rifle barrel, you, your backpack. Other than that, the stuff in there, the last thing you want is camo. It just disappears. It's the absolute last thing you want. Yeah. Swarovski have just released, well, it's, I don't think it's in Australia yet, a lightweight spotting scope for mountain hunting. It's blaze orange. So it should it's be. It's nice to see. doesn't need to be green. Is it blaze orange or hunter's orange? All right. So uh, last question. Well, it's twofold here. But uh, so Mitch has sent in two questions and 
He's obviously listened to the podcast and said that we in, and knows we eat a lot of meat or we eat our own kills. And he's asked two questions here. And it's interesting because I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about this either. So do you use solid copper rounds? And a follow-up question, if not, are you concerned about lead toxicity and what do you do to minimise lead consumption? I'm going to throw this one over to you, Dodge. No, I don't use solid copper rounds. Uh, I currently use the, especially in the 223, the 55-grain Blitz Kings, and they have a polymer tip. And I might just unpack that for a minute. The reason for that is that that explodes when it hits anything, and that forces the front of the round or the front of the bullet itself to expand and open up and mushroom out or petal out, depending on the design of the the load that you're using. But the reason for that is it gives maximum wound opening, like creates the maximum channel that that, that round can can give. And what it then creates is massive shock, but also a, a large area for blood to channel out and head out of the animal. One, that makes them easier to track and two, makes them die quicker. That's my goal and that's what I'm using. If you were to use a solid, what do you say, copper coated or full metal jacket or something is what I would refer to it as, that would just pass straight through an animal and then would leave quite a small hole, still cause damage in the way of, you know, piercing a hole through the heart or piercing a hole through the, the lungs and breaking a shoulder possibly. But we're talking not, yeah, minimal damage the shock of the bullet actually smashing the side of the animal hydrostatic shock creates shock waves that actually blows capillaries up you know within a four inch radius of that entrance and that that's sort of eliminated if the bullet's just piercing through if you if you picture piercing a bit of fabric with a quite pointy sewing needle versus a rather thick knitting needle one you know takes a lot more force to push through and it pushes the threads apart that's exactly what it's doing to an animal versus pushing a really sharp pin through it actually creates a tiny little hole and doesn't damage the outside of the fabric at all so first party question is answered there second part no i've never considered lead in my food most of my rounds will mushroom and not make it out the other side of the animal so they do remain in the animal however they're coming out nearly whole and completely mushroomed Uh, even if i'm shooting and hitting shoulder the shoulder shatters the bullet doesn't tend to and if it does we are talking minute fragments and i'm going to say that there's probably more lead found in other things that we eat so i'll pass that over to anyone else who wants to jump in yeah just on that any other fragments in anything else you eat there was just a study coming out in the newspaper that i read the other day and it talked about that people that have um, chickens at home and they eat the eggs from those chickens, those eggs have a higher uh, level of lead in them due to all the leaded petrol that we had prior to our unleaded petrol that we use now and also lead paints and things like that. So what they were saying is that there's lead in the ground and those chickens in the backyard of your home that are scratching around all day you know, eating everything that's in the ground, they are actually consuming lead and passing that into the eggs, which you then consume. The second point I'd make to that is I was listening to Meat Eater. Uh, They were talking in the last couple of episodes actually about the same sort of thing and they looked at lead in waterways and things like that from shotgun shells and shooting ducks 
and they talked about the studies over in the States have shown, and I'm quoting their last podcast, was that there was no increased level of lead in hunters compared to the general population. So they didn't really feel that that was an issue. Now, again, I'm quoting them. They, uh, I, you know, I don't know exactly all the information behind it, but that's what they were they came up with. And I'm no expert in this field. So, what about you, Ben? What are your thoughts? Look, I'm kind of old school with it. So, there's definitely higher concentrations of lead in the ducks um, themselves. But I look at it this way: people have been shooting animals to eat for hundreds of years, with, as you've just stated, no noticeable increase in lead levels. People said the same thing about chickens. You mentioned chickens there. There's some sort of toxic something osis that lives in the chook poo on the eggs that people who have chooks themselves, because we don't wash them as well and whatever and crack them, people have been eating chicken eggs for a very, very, very long time with very, very, very minimal impact of chook plutosis or whatever it is. So I'm kind of old school with it. I, I, I'm not concerned about it. Yes, lead was a concern, but no, I've eaten – it would be hundreds, it may even be thousands of kilos of game meat that I've shot and it was, it's the last, I'm far more concerned about some sort of worm rather than the buildup of lead from from the bullet. So by all means, go a copper round, but in terms of the minute particles that you're going to ingest from using regular rounds, I, I'd be very interested to read a scientific study that, that laid that out for us. So I'm not in the slightest bit concerned for me or my family. It's interesting that you mentioned the chook eggs there because I was reading the New South Wales Health Safety Standards. You do a lot of reading, Matt. And they advise you – I do. I like reading. So I like to learn new Have things. Have you noticed that Dodge moves his lips when he does it? You watch him there just – Well, he doesn't read. Remember, we've covered this on other podcasts. He doesn't read. He likes picture books. Can read. Don't yeah, read. Made up. Picture books of candy bars. Yeah, so what it was saying is that they say don't wash your eggs because the egg comes out of the chicken with a bloom around it and that actually protects it because eggs are porous. So when you wash it, then that's opening for bacteria and that to go through the eggshell into your egg. What about when they're covered in poop? Well, this is the thing. So you're supposed to dry wash them, which is just essentially just scraping it off with a brush. Now, I'm not a big fan of that. I'll, I'll tell you now, I wash our eggs. We get a little bit of soap and water wash it and then straight into the fridge under four degrees. Never had an issue. Tastes brilliant. Far better than what you buy at Coles. But, I mean, Dodgy's, I think he's having a fit or a stroke or something with his so eyes there. Uh, what do you do, Dodge? Did you have a problem before you wash them? Well, mate, when you're looking at an egg and it's covered in chicken poo, I'm not cracking that over the bowl that I'm going to be cooking in. So I much... I would rather wash the egg, put it in the fridge, and then crack a nice clean egg when I want to eat it. Because when you talked about a dry a dry egg crack and a dry wipe, we ever said you've just described Dodge's personal hygiene habits. But I uh, I agree because Dodge doesn't actually. I mean, he runs Chooks, but there's some sort of fancy. You've, you've got laying. No, he doesn't. What was it? He goes for the caged ones at Coles. The smallest cage possible so they don't even have room to crap on their own egg. Their eggs go straight out the back of the cage before they even get to crap on it. Mine are much cleaner than yours. But hang on, but haven't because you've got you've got rabbits or have you got chooks? What have you got little domesticated thing? No, we had rab yeah, had rabbits last time you were down. No, they don't lay eggs, mate. I'm just telling you. So your whole argument goes out the window. There's no such thing as rabbit eggs. They're smaller, uh, not nearly as tasty. Well, what is what happens at Easter? What does the bunny bring? Yeah, same thing. Here we go again. So 
Dodge is a religious. So hold on, I want to go back to Dodge here. So you would crack an egg. Now, look, I'm no chef, but there has been plenty of times when I've cracked an egg into the pan and there's been shell going with the egg. Now, are you saying that if your chook's at home, you weren't going to wash the eggs, you're going to keep them room temperature with all that crap and poo and stuff on it, and then you're going to crack it and let that pop into the fry pan in your happy days? Look, I have had chooks in the past, and I would like to say that in fairness to, I don't know what's going on with your chickens and what you're feeding them, but the majority of my chickens' eggs were 98% clean. I didn't really experience big caked on turds on the side of the eggshell. And also, also learn how to crack an egg properly, one-handed, no shell in. I'll put a video up of it one day. It's a thing. Did you hear that, listeners? He's going to put a video up this week. It will be on our socials, Dodge Cracking Eggs, one hand, perfectly. I can't wait for this. This is the most exciting thing that's happened since 2000. I'm pretty pretty excited to film that, actually. We'll get the crew in. We'll get some audio set up for it. Of course you are. Hashtag solo eater. Let me do this. Let me bring you down some of my chook eggs that are coated in poop, some of them, and crack one of those over it. You are a fussy eater. Hey, Dodge, what do you think of capsicum? Well, stop picking the eggs up with your bum cheeks, Ben. Sorry, you didn't answer the question. So capsicum? <laughs> oh, that's the devil's word. We'll get into that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Yeah, so just so the listeners know, recoils at it, cowers in the corner, look up with a little bit of a red pepper, as your American ancient feet cousins would say. Can't bear to be anywhere near it. Bell pepper. Bell pepper, correct. Don't have to see it. Don't have to look at it. The, the eggs, I, don't, I think soap's probably a little bit far, but a quick rinse under the tap, scrape a bit of the poo off with your thumbnail, and delicious. Don't worry about it. So I'm sure that Mitch didn't ask about eggs. So getting back to Mitch's question, are we finished on that one? Is everyone using the same bullets? I actually have here and sitting in front of me at the computer a Sierra Bullets Bulletsmith, and I have a list of all the bullets that they produce, and I'm going to say... 85% of them are either a soft point, an open point, or a ballistic point, and they all have lead in them. So, and I think on that note, I uh, Ben, thank you very much, mate. Good to have you back. The listeners have got what they wanted, which is fantastic. So, Truly welcome. Um, thank you for giving up your time and popping on again, and can't wait to have you back on in the future. I'm sure you'll be a uh, regular guest, and just because everybody loves hearing what you've got to say about Dodge. Bit of crazy Uncle Benny. Truly a pleasure. You're absolutely welcome. Thoroughly loved it. Can also say I want to invite you guys to come across, uh, please, and with Velvet Voice Kyle. On a hunt. No, no, you're not welcome on a hunt, Dodge. You're welcome to come across on Channeling the Bush, 2Ns, 1L, Channeling the Bush podcast. Please come across and be guests. Bring Kyle with you. Um, Welcome anytime. And I've truly appreciated the opportunity to, to be part of this. Thank you so much for the invite. Very, very generous. Really appreciated it. I love what you guys are doing, and it's so nice that the listeners are getting it too. You guys deserve it. Good on you. Thanks, Benny. Some kind words. It's uh, not what you said to me in person earlier, but I appreciate that. Thanks for being on again. I've had a good chat and uh, look forward to doing it again soon. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll uh, catch you next time. Bye for now. See you later. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is the Endless Pursuit Podcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media 
Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.